Heavenly Father, we praise you. We bless you. We worship you. Jesus, we thank you for the invasion that happened just over 2,000 years ago. An invasion in the form of a child. And we remember and we worship you and we celebrate your birth this Christmas season. We sang, bless the Lord, but Lord, it is you who bless us over and over and over again. Amen. And so prepare our hearts for the teaching of the word of God this morning. Encourage us, lift us up, magnify your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One other quick announcement I forgot. One of my favorite times of the year is next Sunday is the Christmas breakfast. So everybody's invited. Just bring some food, Christmas or breakfast food, that is. Okay. Yes, Nancy will be making her cinnamon rolls. And so that's enough reason to come just for that. And so we'll be at 930. It'll be no Sunday school. So bring eggs and casseroles and pancakes, whatever, meats and whatnot, and yes, and Nancy's cinnamon rolls. Yes, and all God's people said to that, amen, amen, Amen. very good, okay. This is the last for this year of what the Bible says about next week I'll do a a one-week Advent sermon. But I want to talk to you about this morning, um, get your Bibles out, turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. We're going to talk about cataclysmic events. I will test your, your hearing ability this morning as I struggle to say the word repeatedly, cataclysmic. Okay. My wife would say one of the cataclysmic events in her life is when she married me. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, so then God said that the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said that the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Believe it or not, what we're talking about here is a cataclysmic event. But I want to begin this morning by by asking a simple question. What do you get when you indoctrinate a child from kindergarten through 12th grade in Darwinian evolution? What do you get? Well, you get this. These are uh, 10 catastrophic or cataclysmic events, I'll put it correctly, that transformed the earth. This is by Charles Owen Jackson, okay? And you can explain these real briefly. 
the formation of the moon. Now, the BYA, you can see it there, stands for billions, billion years ago. MYA, as you can see, I think right here, million years ago or millions of years ago. You get the idea here, okay? Now, four and a half billion years ago, apparently the moon was created. Um, and the giant impact hypothesis of that, this claims that four and a half billion years ago, there was a catastrophic impact between the young Earth and another planet-sized object. And the remains of the impact came together to form the moon. That is how evolution says the moon came into existence. We have the lunar cataclysm, uh, the plate tectonics. Anyone know what plate tectonics are? Yeah. The plate tectonics moving and so on helped create a life-bearing planet, is what they say. And this happened four billion years ago to the present time. Now, they have these things, what they call, the next thing that happened was the oxygen holocaust, two and a half to 2.3 billion years ago. This is the first greatest extinction event in Earth's history. There was too much oxygen filled the Earth, which resulted in the great oxygenation event. You can look these things up on Wikipedia. They are there, okay? I'm not making this up. This gentleman is not making this up, Okay? This is what he's been taught. There's the mass glaciations, and you obviously you know what glaciations, the glaciers moving. There is the, the Cambrian global warming, okay, about 541 million years ago. Uh, CO2 levels skyrocketed to over 11 times their current level, and average surface temperatures reached 7 degrees Celsius. These conditions ultimately lead to the Cambrian explosion, which saw the evolution of most modern phyla, or plants. There was oceanic anoxia. Oxygen-poor waters led to massive loss of marine life. There was the great dying of all the mass extinctions that have devastated our world throughout its history. None were quite so profound as a Permian-Triassic event called the Great Dying. Marine ecosystems suffered the heaviest blow of all, with 96% of species vanishing forever. There was the Chicxulub, that's how you say it, impact event. That was basically an asteroid they said hit the planet. But of course, the big one is, that's uh, why I put it up there, is the arrival of humans. As the only fully sentient species to ever live the Earth, he says, humans have also been the cause, either indirectly or directly, of countless extinctions. Those are 10 catastrophic events that helped transform the earth. How many of you have heard those before? Or any of those? Okay. My question is this. Um, how do they know that the plants collided and created a moon? How do they know there was an oxygen holocaust? Were they there? Can they study that? Can they prove that? How do they know that the Cambrian global warming, that CO2 levels skyrocketed? Now, notice the specifics of this to 11 times their current level. How do they know that? Were they there? Can you create this environment in a, a laboratory setting? How do they know the average surface temperatures reach 7 degrees Celsius? How do they know that the great dying, that 96% of species, uh, marine ecosystems, that, that they vanished? How do they know that? 
I read these things to you, and you read them over time, you think that these were proven scientific experiments and scientific fact. They come across that way, but what are they? Theories. It is a guess. It's a best guess. Okay? It's your best guess. Now, it takes a lot of faith to believe in that. What do you get, next question, when you look at what the Bible says is a cataclysmic event? You know what you get? No, you get this right here. A worldwide flood. It says, and Peter's saying, and God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. I'm assuming you didn't know this. If you did, great. If not, you may want to underline this. But the Greek word for flood is the word kataklusmon, from which we get our word cataclysmic. That was a cataclysmic event. Now, were we there to see that? And can we measure that and, and see what happened? Absolutely not. But what do we have that they don't have? A written document. And then it goes back to then how reliable is that document? Does it pass the internal evidence test? It doesn't contradict itself. Does it pass the external evidence test? Is it consistent with the other historical events that we know to be true? When you start looking at all the other artifacts and findings and so on that prove that the, the Bible is by far the most reliable historical document we have, then it gives credence to this narrative in Genesis. Okay, And science can discover things such as the decaying speed of light that we talked about, and how it is a young earth, not an old earth, and so on and so forth. But what you have here is a cataclysmic event from a biblical perspective. It is a planet-shaping event. And that's what we read this morning in Genesis 1, 9 through 13. It's a planet-shaping event, a cataclysmic event. So when you read the creation story, particularly day three, I want you to think a cataclysmic event event. Let's talk about that. Creation day three, a cataclysmic event. Now, as you may recall from the last two weeks, in day one and day two, we have an unformed earth. We have light, and we have a vast universe. And let's look at Genesis 1-9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Now, God is going to shape the earth. And I want to remind you, how does he do this? Through speaking. Then God said, everything comes into being from nothing by God simply speaking it into existence. And also, if you recall, where's the water at this time, at the beginning of day three? It is surrounding the entire earth. Okay? There's also water above the heavens and there's water below the heavens completely engulfing the unformed matter called earth. And he commands the waters below the heavens to be assembled, gathered, collected. He commands them to do exactly what we're doing here this, right now at this very moment. What is this? Fellowship, and what's fellowship? Assembling together. That's exactly what he's having the water do. Come together in one place. 
And I don't want you to read this casually. Use your imagination, folks. Can you begin to imagine the cataclysm that occurred when that was spoken by God? All of a sudden, the various elements in the matter, this unformed matter, that's in this unformed condition, buried under the depths of the surface of the sea, they start to work and move up and push up to create the surface of the land. The water moves, gathering itself into one place. Tremendous chemical reactions get underway as the elements combine. They've never combined before like this, folks. Now they're combining this way and with each other to form the complex of minerals, the complex of rock and soil making up the solid earth. Because what would it have been in, enveloped in water? It would have been like what? Mud, slime, okay? It's coming together. It's, it's, it's forming. It's making up the solid earth. What else is probably being created at this time? In the core of the earth is what? Magna, metal. All of this is, is, is happening, okay? Crust is forming. The mantle, the core. It is a mind-boggling act of creation. When you think about it. Uh, I'm going to quote Henry Morris a lot. He writes this, Great earth movements are underway. Surfaces of solid earth appeared above the waters. And an intricate network of channels and reservoirs opened up in the crust to receive the waters retreating off the rising cotton. Again, you see earth come up. Where's the water going to go? Down in the valley. Down in these subterranean lakes and reservoirs and streams and so on. I mean, think about it. I don't think it's continents, but a one huge continent, we believe, is rising. And if you study plate tectonics, you know that our current continents fit together like a puzzle. Everyone kind of knows that, right? When did they break apart? At the next cataclysmic event, which I just read to you, which was what? The worldwide flood. Now, some believe they broke apart during the... The, the flood, when the fountains of the deep broke open the continent and pushed it into its current form. Folks, when were the fountains of the deep created? Day three. Okay? Day three. Now this implies that originally God created the earth as one big continent, but at this time, the continent, perhaps only one continent rises all the water is gathered into one place. It is assembled, and not only in one great sea, but assembled certainly into numerous distinct basins. The word gathered, by the way, it's plural. That's why we think this. Meaning there was multiple subterranean interconnected water reservoirs, including lakes, streams, rivers, springs, and fountains. Even to this day, there's not water everywhere, but we can find water where? In the oceans or where? Drill down. You find water. This was when that was created. Now the Bible calls these fountains, these, these other you know, subterranean reservoirs, the great deep in Genesis 7-11. And once again I remind you, what God created on day three, look at verse nine, will remain. Why? 
and it was so. I would love for people to speak, and it was so. I don't have that power, okay? That's the case, I had no traffic ever when I drive, because it was so. <laughs> the Lord said to Job about day three of creation, I think I put these verses up here for you. Yeah. Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb, when I made a cloud its garment in thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt in doors, and I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall, you, shall your proud wave stop. Job 38, is that Job or his friends or God speaking? That is God speaking. This is what God said he did on day three. He set a boundary for the waters. You can't go any further than this. What's the garment in thick darkness surrounding the earth at that time? It would have been the darkness in the waters, okay? The psalmist wrote of, on day three of creation this. You covered it with deep. What's the deep? The seas, the waters. As with a garment, with waters were standing above the mountains. That's what? That's day one and day two. At your rebuke, they fled. How did they flee? God said, he spoke, he rebuked, the waters fled. Watch this, at the sound of your thunder they hurried away. That's consistent because when God came down on Mount, he was Zion, right? And it came in a form of what? Cloud and storm and lightning and all that darkness and so on, and he spoke, it was what? Thundering, and the people couldn't stand it. It was too much for them. So he's speaking at this day of creation, and at the sound of his thunderous voice, the waters are retreating. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place where you established them. He says, I want you to go there. You go there. I can't get my dog to stay. Okay? God says this. Boom, you go there, you go there. And that's where they go. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so they, they will not return to cover the earth. So the very reason why the waters are not covering the earth because God said so. In Proverbs 8, we find that God is personified as wisdom. This is what it says about day two and day three of creation. When he established the heavens, the heavens is that great expanse, it's the you know, space, I was there, wisdom was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, he cut out the planet. When he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed. So those springs of the deep, those underwater channels and lakes and subterranean reservoirs, they were fixed, they were there. We know that they were there for one reason. What was that reason? To be used in the flood. So if you don't think that God has a destiny and a plan and everything is moving towards its destined end, I don't know what book you're reading because you won't find that in the Bible. So everything is moving towards a destined end. And he, he fixed this. When he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. So we see very personal, detailed involvement 
in God with his creation, of God with his creation. Now let's go to Genesis 1, verse 10. It says, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering or the assembling or the fellowship of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So God names the dry lands and the waters. He called the dry land earth and the remaining waters seas. And for only the second time, God uses the word good in reference to his creation. He saw that light was good in Genesis 1-4, and now he sees that the separation of earth and seas is good. But why? Because it was now inhabitable capable of sustaining life. It had reached a point where it could contain and sustain life. And folks, this is why he created it. Look at what Isaiah says here. For thus says the Lord, again, God is speaking, who created the heavens, now look at this, he is the God who formed the earth, he's forming matter, and made it. He established it, meaning what? By establishing it, what does that mean? It's not gonna disappear, it's not gonna fall apart. It's going to remain fixed by his command. It won't burn up because of climate change. <laughs> and did not create it a waste place, meaning it un- a void. But what? He formed it to be inhabited. He created it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no one else. I mean, it's a great way to end that, right? <laughs> Can you do that? No, I'm the Lord. There's no one else. Okay? Now, it is good for two other reasons. Because it can, not only can it contain life, but right now there's no sin in the world. And right now there's no death. That's why it's good. Verse 11. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees in the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. It'd be kind of neat if you let the earth sprout candy, right? Or Nancy Simmon rolls or something like that. We have vegetables. Come on, God. But now God moves into the second phase of creation of day three. As always, he is creating, bringing into existence that which did not exist. The basic building blocks were there because everything is made up, we are all made up of what? Matter. So he creates plants through a spoken word. He creates vegetation, which is really a general term. Plants and trees are summed up into one category called vegetation. After closer examination, you're going to find some unique characteristics of these two types of vegetation. First of all, I want you to write, if you want to remember something from this, remember this, on day three, those plants are created mature. Okay? When my plant, you know, you plant something, they don't just automatically pop up and they're sprouting seeds, do they? They grow up, get to a certain point, then they produce seeds, and then the seeds fall to the ground or are blown around. These are all, these are mature. They're not created as seeds, and that means that they did not evolve. They did not evolve. Number two, they're seed yielding, i.e., they, they, meaning, and you see it here, they reproduce. They were meant to reproduce. 
Number three, that the plants have the seed in it, the trees have the seed in its fruit. See that? And number four, the seeds of plants and fruit reproduce, and this is so important, after their kind. Plants and fruits do not evolve into other forms of plants and fruit. I mean, I'd be okay if they evolved into a Snickers candy bar. I'd be good with that. But anything else, no. But they don't. Beans don't evolve into carrots. Oranges don't turn into apples. The seeds of a bean produce what? Beans. The seeds of an apple only produce an apple. It only has, what we're finding here, the capacity to function on the basis, basis of what we now know as their genetic code that is placed in them by their creator. So as soon as the earth was ready to sustain life, life in its simplest form was created and intended to be the food for all the higher life yet to be made. And this pattern of plants and fruit-yielding seeds after their kind began on day three, and guess what? Again, it is fixed and unchanging. Why? Because God said it was so. And he reaffirms this principle with Noah after the flood. Turn to Genesis 8, 22, a few chapters ahead. And it may be a verse that you want to memorize. This is after the flood, after the second cataclysmic event. There are three cataclysmic events the Bible speaks of. Creation, particularly day three, the flood, and what's the next cataclysmic and last cataclysmic event? The earth will be reformed and destroyed by fire, great heat, which as at this point in history, it can only be through nuclear war. And then it'll be so destroyed, he'll bring in a new heaven and a new earth. Well, that being said, look at Genesis 8:22, talking about food and it remaining. After the flood, this is one of the first things God says to Noah, while the earth remains, meaning what? The earth is going to remain seed time and harvest. Seed time is when seeds come out, they're planted, and then harvest when we harvest that. And cold and heat seasons, right? In the summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. This is why Christians reject the dangerous lie of climate change. It pains me to see our misguided government throw trillions of dollars at something that will never happen. I had to laugh. I like movies, and, and occasionally Star Trek is on. I love watching Star Trek. Leonard Nimoy, who plays Spock, I found a video of him online in 1977 talking about climate change from a science perspective, and he said that the world would end in 30 years. In 2007, we're still here, and the climate hasn't radically changed. Okay? Well, why? It's going to remain, God said. And there'll always be food. 
And so, so Genesis 8, 22, just, we never have to worry about running out of vegetables and fruit, is really what this is saying here, okay? It will always be there, okay? Once again, I want to read from Henry Morris, and he says this, implanted in each created organism was a seed programmed to enable the continued replication of that same organism. The modern understanding of the extreme complexities of the so-called DNA molecule and the genetic code contained in it has reinforced the biblical teaching of the stability of kinds. Each type of organism has its own unique structure of the DNA and can only specify the reproduction of that same kind. There's a tremendous amount of variational potential within each kind, facilitating the generation of distinct individuals and even of many varieties within the kind, but nevertheless precluding the evolution of new kinds. A great deal of horizontal variation is easily possible, but no vertical changes. In other words, what he means by this is that we only see limited variation, for example, in this room. We see people who vary in what? Size, shape, color, ability, etc. But guess what? We're all people. Many varieties, but the same kind. This is what science has learned. Over the years, science is discovering the amazing complexity of just the basics of life, cellular structure. The more they discover and learn, the more they realize that the theory of chemical evolution is just impossible. So to drive home the point of limited variation, God sums up day three in verses 12 through 13 of Genesis 1. So go back there. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. In other words, he's repeating verse 11. And God saw that it was good. It's good for three reasons. It can, it can sustain life, there's no sin, and there's no death. There was evening, there was morning, a third day. Now, whenever God wants us to know something, he repeats it over and over. Any good teacher does that. Being all-knowing, God knew that Satan would counter the truth of the creation narrative with the lie of Darwinian evolution. He knew that. It didn't take him by surprise. And knowing the truth of the scriptures is the antidote to the poisonous lies of the world and Satan. And perhaps no other portion of scripture, folks, has been under more attack than Genesis chapter 1. And if you look at Genesis 1.1, again, I'm going to quote Henry Morris, explains that this one verse refutes all of man's false philosophies concerning the origin and meaning of the world. So I put this up there for you. See, it refutes atheism, because the universe was created by God. It refutes pantheism. We know that is from the Sunday school class. For God has transcended to that which he created. It refutes polytheism. One God created all things. Materialism. See, matter had a beginning. Matter isn't all there is. It refutes dualism because God was alone when he created. Dualism says that good and evil exist at the time of creation. Humanism, because God, not man, is the ultimate reality, and it refutes evolutionism 
because God created all things. I mean, the very first verse, Genesis 1-1, just destroys all of that. But there is something else about the creation narrative in Genesis 1 that I want us to see that I think is not so obvious. It's what I call clearly seen. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. God says the reason why I exist is in two forms. Number one is that there's a, amongst many forms, one is that your conscience. Men know the truth, they suppress it. Number two is, is my creation. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now when I've always pondered this verse, I've typically thought that Paul was referring to the sense of awe one feels when looking at a majestic mountain peak such as maybe Mount Rainier. Or the sense of overwhelming finiteness one feels when gazing up at the innumerable stars on a clear summer night. You get a sense of, I am, I am small. Or the sense of fear one wrestles with when in a boat floating on the seemingly endless ocean with no land in sight. There's something we intrinsically sense about our existence in those moments that we instinctively begin to reason that some higher power, a creator, fashioned all of this. And that what we're experiencing with all of our senses could not have come about by random chance. But I now also believe that there is something much deeper in creation that points to God. And again, I quote Henry Morris, he says this, as would be expected in any product by an intelligent being, the product, i.e. the universe, would give some insight into the nature of the originator. According to the Bible, God imprinted something about himself in the things he created and made so that all of humanity might be able to clearly see enough about God's power in Godhead that no one could claim ignorance of a creator God. Now theologians, what I'm getting at here, they see elements of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in the creation account. In other words, they see it, for example, in Genesis 1.1. Yes, we know that the, all the members of the Trinity were there at creation, but Genesis 1.1 says this, you know this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Right? I told you that in the beginning is what? God created what? That's what? Time. He created what? The heavens. What's that? Space. In the earth. Matter. Time, space, and matter. Those are the building blocks of the universe. Time, space, and matter. All, I said this, that all reality, that Herbert Spencer in 1903 is when he died, he, he discovered this, that all reality that exists in the universe is made up of three parts, time, space, and matter. Thus we live in a, a universe, but really it's a tri-universe, made up of what? 
time, space, and matter. Exactly. Now I want you to consider space and follow me here with this, folks, because I had to wrestle with this. I'm going to explain to you as best I can. Space. Remember when God created space on day two? He separated the waters, and that expanse was called space. We exist in space. I don't want you to think of space as simply when you look up to the sky and you see space, that space, like space, the final frontier, okay? But we all exist in space. Only one being exists outside of space. Who's that? God. He created space. Okay, so other than the creator, nothing exists outside of space. Now, space is invisible. I'll explain it to you. It's also unknowable, and it is everywhere. Thought of this way, space is like God the Father. He's invisible, right? God exists in a, a, a blinding light. He, he is unknowable. He is also spirit. He is invisible, okay? But God is everywhere. He is like space. Now, you understand space a little more when we talk about what matter is. Matter, or, or mass plus energy, it, here's the key, folks. It reveals space to us. At night, in a clear night, you look up at the sky, what do you see? And we look up there, and what do we say? That is space. That is not space. What you see is matter. Matter defines space. Does that make sense? So in other words, there is 10 feet between me and my mother-in-law. I wish there was 3,000 miles, but there's 10 feet. Okay? Okay? Can you see that space between us? Well, no, not really. But you can see her, and you can see me, and then we were able to measure that all because of matter. Okay? So matter reveals space to us, and therefore, it makes the invisible space visible. Invisible space is understood by the presence of matter. Okay? So matter is like God the Son, because what's the purpose of God the Son? He reveals the Father to us, who is invisible. You see the Son, you see the Father. So the Father's like space, the Son is like matter. The Son's like matter because he's also what? Matter is tangible. We can see it, we can, we can feel it, right? Time. Think about it this way. Time flows from God to the universe and passes into historical events of the past. Okay, you understand that? You, time is, is existing, think of it as a line, okay? And you were born at this time, you become a conscious and aware, and you experience life and matter in space through time. The joke that I just made about my mother-in-law, that is now in the past. But two minutes ago, you experienced it in and through time. Does that make sense? And so, all things are experienced 
through and by time. And time is like God the Spirit. God the Spirit, because the Spirit is who brings the experience of God to us. He reveals the Father and the Son to us. When you are called to repentance and you are desired to come and believe and place your faith in God, that is a work of the convicting you of sin, of your lack of righteousness in the judgments of coming, so you believe in him. So space, time, and matter. Think of it this way. This chart maybe will help you. I got this from Henry Morris. The Father is like space. He's invisible. He's omnipresent. He's the source. He's the authority. So I did this space, matter, and time. He's invisible. The Son is visible, right? We can see him, relate to him that way. We will see him sitting on the throne in the new heaven and new earth, and we will worship him. In him is the full deity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Shekinah glory, that's him. We sense the Spirit. He is omnipresent. They all are, but he's tangible. We can relate to him. He brings understanding. He's the authority. He declares this authority. He does the work of the Father. He makes it, appropriates it, applies it to our lives. You see that? We live in a tri-universe, the reality of a universe, space, time, and matter. They are a picture, when you think about it, of the Trinity. And we, we know that all members of the Trinity were present at creation. God the Father planned the work of creation, the Son did the work of creation, and the Holy Spirit energized the work of creation. And watch this. By the end of day three, what do we have? Well, God has made out of the building blocks of a tri-universe, time, space, and matter, he has created a tripartite universe. We have earth, sea, and heaven. You see that? Earth, sea, and heaven. That's the reality within which we exist. He created the continents and separated the seas. And he's going to now fill that space or the skies with what? In the next day. Stars and lights and sun and moon. And then eventually fill it with what? Birds that can fly. He will populate the, the dry earth with animals and humans. Okay? So there is a deeper layer of understanding, I think, of what Paul means when he wrote that his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Does that help a little bit? I mean, you can even go to the human body if you want to think about it even further. I'll maybe delve in this a little deeper, but you are a trinity. Seven octillion atoms make up the average human body. What makes up an atom? Three parts. Proton, neutron, and electron. You are seven octillion trinities. See, it all points to a creator. And that's why, you know, the psalmist wrote this, and this is what we'll close with. You can see now, we're studying this creation, and the heavens, the space, the expanse, 
the skies declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And again, I said to you, he is reusing his hands. He's speaking, and things are coming to existence. It talks about his hands you know, creating things and cutting things out and forming things. Day after day, they pour forth speech, his creation. Night after night, they display knowledge. Is his creation speaking? No, it's not, as we understand speaking, but it is testifying, speaking to an existence of a creator. And only man denies that because he suppresses the truth about it, because he's in rebellion against God. He says, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. It's everywhere. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And what we're reading in Genesis 1, in the very first three days, it's speaking of God. It's revealing God. You study it deeper. You study the human body deeper. You look at the, the basic physics of this world. It all points to a creator. And it makes perfect sense that man who doesn't want to live under the rule of God would come up with an alternate theory and suppress the overwhelming truth. You ever know why there's not many debates between evolutionists and creationists? The evolutionists will not debate because when they do, they lose, and they lose big time. Because the evidence is just overwhelming of a creator. So the only thing that they have to do is to suppress the truth. And in doing so, their conscience bearing witness against them, they sear their conscience, they seal their doom, and then God then brings up the creation as another evidence against them. Because conscience is telling them, they ex God exists, but you suppressed it. Creation tells them they exist. Creation condemns. It condemns. It will not lead anybody to God. What only leads someone to faith in God is the gospel. Nobody's without excuse. You have no excuse. This creation screams of the glory of God. And so there's a whole lot here when you take the time to think about what we've been studying so far. And just don't be afraid or hesitant to say that you, know, you believe in a creator God that is the only reasonable response. And I've just given you a fraction of the scientific evidence. Because for me to talk about the decay of the speed of light, you know how much it hurts my brain to sit in there throughout the week and figure that out, and try to, quite frankly, dumb it down to me so I can make it explainable to you Okay, so I find myself talking to my wife who understands it better than me. What does this mean? My brain hurts, stop it. Okay, it's beyond me. But the evidence is overwhelming. And so what I want you to do this week is just meditate on Psalm 19, 1 through 4. Praise him, meditate on it, think about this. Read the first 13 verses of Genesis and praise God for that. That's what I've been doing.
Amen? Let's praise his name together. Let's close with, oh, praise the name. And then we'll go from here and then wrap some gifts. And you can go Christmas shopping and think about the gift you're going to get the pastor, right? Christmas gift? Right, right? All right. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the wonders of your creation. And we want to glorify you as we worship you with this last song. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.